According to a report published by National Geographic earlier this year, sea levels are expected to rise one foot by 2050 due to the effects of ocean heating, climate change, and carbon emissions. This is especially problematic for coastal areas, which simultaneously are seeing an increase in their population densities. Add in the difficulty of aging infrastructure in many geographies, and you have a real recipe for disruption. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If When, I discuss the topic of sea level rise with Abby Chrysostomo, Tim's Estuary 2100 Project Director, and Natalie McEldowie, Jacobs Environment Agency Client Account Manager. We talked about the efforts that London is undertaking via the Tim's Estuary 2100 plan to address sea level rise and what actions that industry and coastal cities might consider adopting to counter this burgeoning environmental challenge. Abby and Natalie, thank you both so much for joining me today to talk about high tides and uh, sea level rising. Uh, Fascinating topic and seems like something that we should be concerned about and you know it'd be interesting to see especially as your experience there in the united kingdom particularly with london you know what we can learn uh, about this challenge and you know what's being done so start us off abby i'd like to ask you know when london realized it was going to be at increasing risk of flooding through this century what was the response Thanks, Paul. I think, you know, I have to hand it to my predecessors, I think, um, because they flagged this really as an issue almost 20 years ago and, you know, took the decision to tackle it using what was at the time an innovative approach and is still innovative and now is being taken more broadly around the world. But really, I think, you know, it wasn't just about increasing flood risk. You know, it it was uh, we've got climate change, so uh, it was just going to go up over time. Um, But we also have population growth in London and outside of London, where there's quite a lot of growth, um, even um, in the outer edges of London and the estuary. And, uh, you know, we're lucky to have a system in place already. We have the Thames Barrier that was built uh, or started operating in 1983 and a massive kind of system of walls and embankments and defenses. So we had all that, but it's all aging now as well. So you've got that kind of triple threat of the climate change, aging infrastructure and population growth that we had to deal with. And you know, if we didn't manage that risk, then we were gonna get into trouble. And given the scale of what we're talking about, we need to think about it at that scale. And I think, you know, even with climate change, even if we did everything perfectly, right now, tomorrow, if we did everything we could do to mitigate climate change and stop making it worse, we've already got the impacts of what's happened so far. So we know that sea level is already rising. And so we have to plan for this. So it took eight years to develop the Thames Estuary 2100 plan. But what it does is that it takes an adaptation pathways approach um, to thinking about this long-term change that's needed in the estuary, but also in light of the uncertainty we have with climate change. So we know climate change is happening. We know sea level rise is happening, but we don't necessarily know how quickly it's going to happen and the scale of investment that needs to happen to kind of manage that risk is so big that we both need to take the time to plan for it properly, 
but we also don't want to invest in the wrong thing or you know, too big or too small of a, a solution. So what the Adaptation Pathways approach lets us do is it sets out multiple different options that we have for that future mm-hmm. and that we can spend the current period planning towards those different options. But at the same time, we're monitoring sea level rise, climate change, as well as a number of other metrics um, in terms of population growth and other things um, to understand when's the point at which we need to make a change. And so while we're monitoring monitoring that at the same time, we can kind of make the best decision at the mm. right time. So we have all the information gathered to make that decision. So yeah, the plan uh, took eight years to develop. It was published in 2012. It was led by the Environment Agency, but alongside partners. And it set out kind of three phases of activity. So up to 2035, We're kind of doing that research, we're gathering information, we're maintaining the system we already have, and we're leading ourselves up to a decision. But then it's in that next kind of phase from 2035 to 2050, where we start investing in different solutions to help us manage that sea level rise. And then we're even planning even beyond that from kind of 2050 to 2100 and beyond um, in terms of what those solutions could look like. Hmm. That's it. That's fascinating. You know, I, I can't help but think that London is probably, if not the most perfect testing ground for this, definitely one of the global testing grounds. I mean, you know, London is by some some measures, I think it's the quote unquote smartest city on earth in terms of like AI and emerging technology and, and like how far along it is compared to most geographies coupled with the fact that it's a mega city by the UN metric. So it's, it's a destination city. The population is growing by leaps and bounds. And then there's all kinds of resource. I mean, it's obviously also maybe not the financial capital of the world, but definitely one of the financial capitals of the world. So it's this, this beautiful nexus of technology and people and resources to be able to tackle a problem like this. So Natalie, you know, when you see cities like London setting out long-term adaptation plans, you know, what are the opportunities that this can create to deliver projects and programs differently? Thanks, Paul. Well, while we're extolling the virtues of London, I have to start with the fact that I have a really strong personal relationship with London. Mm -hmm. I first came to London when I was 18 years old and spent a summer staying with family. And that experience changed my life for, for all the reasons that you've just described. This is this is nothing like Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I was a big thinker in a small place. With all, all due love and respect to Fort Wayne, Indiana, of course. Indeed, but. indeed, yes. Now I go there on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> but I ended up coming back here for a couple mm-hmm. summers while I was getting my engineering degree in university. I met the Englishman that I call my husband for the last 24 years. And it's because of that that I've lived here in England for 18 years. And now what I do for a living, working for Jacobs, serving infrastructure clients, and I have particular focus on serving the environment agency, the long-term adaptation plans that we have, for example, in the Thames Estuary provides the opportunity for the long-term contracting mechanisms, which foster collaboration, deeper relationships between people across businesses and areas of expertise. And this opens up more innovative ways of working. 
And there's a lot going on in the UK in terms of transforming the, the way that the public and the private sector work together. Um, we have the National Infrastructure Strategy that came out in 2020, and this is about leveling up, so creating much better social equality in this country and working towards achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And underpinning that is the construction playbook. And I mean, I can say with all honesty, having done this work for a living for quite a long time, I'm hearing more references to a government release document than ever before in the construction playbook, which really articulately lays out a transformational change in the way that we work. And these long-term contracts, they enable us to really focus on developing the skills that we need now in the future to do what is required to deliver the outcomes. When you have longer term ambitions, you can spend more time up front planning what you're going to do. And the more time you spend planning, the more likely you are to succeed. You can also deliver in a much safer way where you have time to plan. And, and it gives you more space to quote unquote, build back greener. So developing those net zero solutions and considering the whole life of the assets. And it also enables businesses to invest in technologies. When you can see a, a long-term relationship over an opportunity that you're going to be involved in over a period of time, businesses will invest in technologies and solutions that they know that they're going to get a return on that investment because they have that opportunity to, to apply it. And this brings us on to things like the modern methods of construction where we're focused on, when you look at long-term asset management, asset planning, how can we think about developing our solutions in a much more sustainable way? So in modern methods of construction, you've got opportunities for off-site manufacturing and different ways of implementing them on-site. And in that controlled environment, you can be more efficient, you produce less waste, you're, you're much better at delivering an optimal solution. And, and all of this is in service to providing value for money for the taxpayer. Hmm. That's fascinating. You know, and I mean, companies like Jacobs, you know, they invest in, in, it could be said in a certain way, they invest in the communities in which they do the work because so much time and energy and effort, particularly time too, you know, goes into working toward that development, you know. So, Abby, this next question is, is it's really kind of anchored in that idea of a time investment. Given that you're already 10 years into the, the Tim's Estuary 2100 plan, you know, what are the main challenges that lie ahead and how do your adaptation pathways help to manage these? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, a, it's so interesting with a 100-year plan, 10 years into it, it feels both like it's been quite a long time and that it's been no time. Uh, but I think there's quite a lot of challenges. We're, we're in the process of doing our first kind of full review of the plan we call the 10-year review, where we're kind of looking at what we've done so far, how it's worked, how far we've come against the original uh, intentions of the plan, um, and also how the world in the estuary is changing. And I think what has come out of that are 
probably four main challenges, <laughs> sub challenges, we'll see. So I think, so one of them is keeping up to date with the, the science and the engineering that you need to. So, you know, from our monitoring research, we've found that sea level is rising. It's, ri it's rising in line with the kind of most likely scenario in the IPCC scenarios. So, you know, but it is rising. So we need to make sure that we are understanding this climate forecast and how climate science is changing. But then we also have to translate that into our day-to-day -day operation and how we can make decisions in the, in the medium to long-term. You know, how we do modeling, how we consider tidal cycles, how do we think about uh, the way f weather forecasts will change. So that's the first one. I think the second main challenge is it's a really big area to manage that we're looking after. The Thames Estuary kind of tidal defense network is made up of 333, 330 kilometers of flood walls and embankments. We have nine major barriers and we have more than 400 kind of other structures, floodgates, pumping stations, outfalls. And as I said before, these assets are aging. So we have to think about, you know, we, part of what the plan sets out for us is to take a strategic asset management approach. And that means trying to invest more in optimized maintenance so that we can you know, invest less now and prevent more expensive investment later um, when it comes to failures, um, which is not something that is always easy to do um, with the way that funding works for the type of, um, the type of investment we can do. And then obviously with sea level rise, the plan sets out a number of intervention deadlines for upgrading defenses for sea level rise. So in most cases, that means kind of raising the line of the defense, but sometimes it means kind of managed retreat or realignment or coming up with kind of other solutions where it's not worth kind of investing in that additional upgrade. So we have quite a large scale of geography and number of assets to deal with. And so kind of the third challenge is really linked to that because actually only 12% of that network is, that's 12% by number, about 30% uh, by length, is kind of owned and operated by the Environment Agency. So that third challenge is really about working with others to actually deliver the plan. And so that's kind of working with local authorities, sometimes who either own, own the land or own the assets themselves or run the planning system that dictates kind of how development can happen along the riverfront. But then the other part of it is the riparian owners themselves. So um, here in London, it's the riparian owner. So the landowner on which the defense, the flood defense sits is actually responsible for maintaining that and improving it over time. But, you know, in some parts of London, you've got literally individual landowners, especially in West London. It's a little different kind of in East London where you've got kind of probably wider estates and housing developments. And then it's even different further out in the outer estuary where you've got more kind of industrial areas. But, you know, across the whole estuary, a really different mix of who owns or is responsible for the riverfronts. And so trying to do, you know, trying to raise the level of defense across that whole estuary by a certain point in time is really, really complicated in terms of how we work with our partners and with landowners. And then I think the kind of fourth challenge, which I think I'm sure is kind of 
everybody's challenge in a sense. It's it's how do we how do we fund all of this? You know, with mm. such a different set of people who kind of reap the benefits of this flood defense system versus who's kind of got the ability to pay. It's how do you match up those beneficiaries and the uh, you know and the investment needed, because you know the environment agency has a certain amount that we invest in quite a lot at the moment that we can invest into flood defense systems, but it's not going to be enough for the level of investment we're going to need. And if in the future we need either an improved Thames barrier or a new Thames barrier, that's going to be a massive investment, both um, in terms of funding, but also kind of political will. So really big stuff that we have coming up. But I think what the adaptation pathways approach gives us is the ability to kind of think think about those long-term challenges now and start planning for them and start actually building the relationships with partners, setting up the systems, um, setting up the kind of partnerships, for example, what we have right now with Team 2100 and Jacobs and Balfour Beattie in terms of how we then invest in the near term. And we kind of can learn in that process about how to keep improving that over time. You know, Natalie, Abby mentioned working with partners. And, you know, when you, you look at the prospects of sea level rise, and you couple that with the demographic changes where I want to say, I'm going to quote, I think the UN said like 60% of the, the world's population are moving toward mega cities within this century. So you're looking at cities like Tokyo, Los Angeles, New York City, Shanghai, where you know these are huge cities, immense populations, and they're coastal, which I'm not a scientist, but I suspect that puts them at more risk for something like sea level rise. You know, so coming back to that idea of partnerships and collaboration that Abby touched on, you know, what can the industry or what can industry do to support cities like, like those I mentioned, like London, you know, and working smart to manage the impact of sea level rise? Yeah, thanks, Paul. I mean, you're absolutely right. You look at these major cities and they became what they are because of their proximity to this international highway, which is the ocean. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, again, I've got a personal experience. I don't actually live in London, but several years ago, my husband and I took his his mother and our baby at the time mm-hmm. to their childhood home. And this is just up the um, up the Thames and we were walking along the strand on the green in Chiswick and went and saw how the house looked. And we went to a local pub, sat upstairs, had a nice meal chatting away, came down and the tide was up. I did not even realize this was happening. We were we couldn't go out the door we came in. The water in that really short space of time had risen by feet and I looked around and people seemed pretty casual about it. Like they were used to it. People were standing on picnic tables. I I suddenly noticed that Mm -hmm. the pub itself had all this property level resilience attached to it so that the water wasn't actually coming into the building. But I thought, wow, here I am just a civilian and this has happened without my even noticing. This is just stressing the contextual importance of what we're talking about here. This affects people's daily lives now. And in terms of what can we in industry do, well, we're, we're working across so many different infrastructure developers, particularly in this country where we're working for all the public sector developers. And those, those relationships that we have gives us an opportunity to be the integrators, to look at 
solutions across the system. So mm-hmm. I think up to now, we really, in infrastructure, delivered individual projects. And yes, you imagine that somewhere along the way, somebody made a master plan and these things hang together. But as we continue to develop and make our places suitable for a growing and aging population where we need to be doing things very differently to protect the natural environment and deliver outcomes in a a net zero carbon way, we have an opportunity to look across all those projects and all those programs and, and leverage the relationships that we have with our clients, with the industry forums. I mean, I believe in my experience of working for the Environment Agency as my main client for the last few years, they're they're very mature in this space around collaboration and innovation and really, really understand that we're all human beings trying to do good things for human beings. And, And with that, you need to be collaborative and develop collaborative behaviors and think about your purpose and, and I think there's a lot going on here. I mean, I would encourage anybody who's listening to this to Google infrastructure planning authority roadmap to 2030. There's a brilliant graphic that really shows what this systems thinking approach could look like. And it sets the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals right at the top of the tree of decision making. What, what are the societal outcomes that we're looking to achieve? What value can be delivered? And then how do we work together? And most importantly, how do we integrate all the data that we have across these different systems so that we're able to make smarter decisions? And and, and we know that Jacobs is really pushing itself as a business in that direction of being at the forefront of addressing the climate experience, the climate uh, response as well as really investing in digital transformation so that we're able to be in that position to make better decisions. Now, Abby, you know, they say every cloud has a silver lining. Uh, You know, what are the opportunities socially and environmentally that creating a long-term adaptation plan like the Thames Estuary 2100 can create for global cities like London? Yeah, I mean, I think part of how we set it up is to try to take advantage of those wider benefits. So, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, it's climate adaptation and flood risk protection. I mean, there's more than 1.4 million people and 321 billion pounds worth of residential property that benefit from the tidal defense system in the Thames Estuary. And then within that, there's flows, there's 56,000 commercial industrial properties, more than 700 healthcare centers. 116 train and tube stations, more than 27 square kilometers of open space. So there's all this stuff that's getting protected by having the Thames Estuary defense system in place and continuing to make sure that that system adapts um, with sea level rise and climate change. And you you were just talking before, Natalie, about personal impact. I mean, I I personally, I live in central London in Elephant and Castle, which is right in the middle of the area of um, North Southwark that is very much impacted. If there was ever, you know, if if the defences did not exist, where I live would be underwater. So it is very personally something that matters to me. But I think the other thing, so in addition to that flood risk protection that, you know, we get out of having this plan, 
The other thing that having the long-term vision and adaptation pathways approach that we have is to have that strategic, you know, 100-year time horizon and vision that gives us all something to plan to and translate to on a local level and integrate into our local plans. So we have what we call the Riverside Strategies approach, which is part of um, how we implement the, the plan. And really kind of what it asks is, what is the vision for our Riversides? So there's a kind of an easy answer where, you know, we have sea levels rising and in a lot of the Thames Estuary, we've got walls and embankments. So, you know, in certain parts of the estuary, um, after a certain number of years, we could see another kind of half meter to a meter of protection needed. So you could just go around and tack on an extra half meter to a meter on top of all your walls and embankments. And that would kind of be like the easy way to do it. But if you think about, you know, if you've been in central London and if you've been near the riverfront, you think about what the relationship is with people in London to the actual the river and the waterfront. If you stuck another meter on top of those walls, you'd be completely disconnected from the river. You'd be completely separate and inward facing, and it would no longer be part of you know what is basically cut through the center of the city. And so, you know, what we try to ask for and work with others on with this riverside strategies approach is that's kind of the default position. But how about we plan? How we how about we build into local plans what the vision is for your riverfront that incorporates adaptation into the flood defenses that gives us the protection that we need. And so whether that's actually building in, you know, habitat, we've got this program called Estuary Edges, where we think about how you build habitat and ecology into defense systems and waterfronts. Um, how do you improve access to waterfronts? So, you know, large parts of the Thames have the River Thames path. How do we make sure that we continue to have that and that it that we don't, again, stick more uh, flood defenses in front of it where you have no relationship with the river. But how could you also, while investing in the path, invest in a flood defense system also? So it's kind of what we do with that approach and what the adaptation pathways approach gives us is that long-term view. So you can spend the time now thinking, what would I want the waterfront to look like you know, with climate change happening and how can we make sure that we align, you know, the planning system and new developments and, and local investment in a way that then gives us something that benefits us in terms of access to the waterfront or increased habitat or just that wider amenity of having having proximity to to the blue space. You know, and and you're touching on this idea that, you know, in order to like plan for the future to plan long-term, you know, you need to have innovative ideas, right? There needs to be, you need to take a, a moment to like think creatively and kind of come at the problem, you know, in a, in a, in a different way, let's say, rather than just like what seems like might be the easy fix or the obvious fix, or just throw up some more brick walls and just brick everything around, you know, but, you know, obviously that's, that strikes at the heart of the culture of London, you know, and, and really strikes at like the quality of living and, and, and all of that. And so, you know, Natalie kind of getting in that, in that context, you know, what are some of the bold ideas you think that industry and global cities might need to consider in order to adapt to increasing sea levels later on here in the 21st century? As Abby's already mentioned, setting back the coastline, perhaps not 
suitable for the center of London, but in other coastal areas or outer estuaries. Making space for water, that sounds obvious, but it's actually really bold because it requires you to change the way people are are living their daily lives. And one of the things that is becoming of increasing importance is the creation of salt marsh habitat because it has a big potential for carbon sequestration. We've had a couple projects where we've successfully delivered outcomes around salt marsh habitat creation. And these, as Abby talks about, these end up becoming sources of pride and joy and community well-being. Because that that connection that you have with nature and the connection that people have with water just increases your quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in Jacobs, we're doing a lot of work in the space of, of blue carbon, and it's a really exciting place to be. And the other thing to consider is tidal energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, water, especially from the sea, presents a great opportunity for renewable energy. It, in the last couple of decades, it fell foul to not being the chosen solution because of the the impact on marine life that the types of solutions that generated tidal energy presented, you know, and so they just kind of became quite unpopular in favor of other sources of renewable energy. But now here we are in the middle of this climate crisis Mm. and this real push to net zero, we probably need to open that back up. And I understand that the UK government is getting back behind that. And when you get leadership and an impetus behind something, it can give rise to better innovation, more creative thinking, you know, how do we make this work? So that it doesn't have negative environmental impacts, but it achieves those outcomes that we're all aiming for. And, and on the point of outcomes, if I dwell on that, in this industry, we often say that we're outcome focused and we, mm-hmm. we, we like to think that we're outcome focused, but are we really? I don't think so. I think we all have a tendency to default back to what we know, which is being quite prescriptive and mm-hmm. to achieve all those great things that Abby's just described. I think it's going to take a different way of working where, where we're really asking industry and the marketplace to deliver outcomes. And that's where you will unlock innovation and drive continuous improvement. So when you've got a clear vision and aren't overly prescriptive about how to solve the problem, mm-hmm. You know, I think that's going to give rise to achieving these bolder outcomes that Abby has described. And, you know, one of the most effective ways is to create sustainable contracting environments that promote collaboration, but are set up in such a way that we're not doing unnecessary work. Why produce that output just because you've done it that way before if it doesn't need to be done? to achieve the outcome. No, that's fascinating because it, it really comes down to a focus on focus on the problem, not the, a prescribed solution. Like, this is what I know. This is, let me produce this. And it's like, well, but that may not actually solve the problem you're trying to solve, you know? So mm-hmm. it's really being more fundamental in terms of what it is you're, you're hoping to accomplish and, and working from that now. Yeah, and if, I, can, I can add to that just a little bit. And it's also mm-hmm. about... The client and the delivery partner taking risks that they're not used to taking. And you can see this happening more and more. And Abby talked about where is the funding source going to come from? Well, Mm -hmm. I think we'll increasingly see private investment 
So mm-hmm. you're funding it because you know that it's going to achieve a monetized outcome, a monetized benefit. And that's mm-hmm. that feels like a space that we're, that we're moving into and navigating our way through at the moment. And I don't think anybody has the perfect answers, but it's a really exciting time to be having really open, creative conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're, we're finding ourselves at a time where, you know, change is upon us. And so now it's, you know, how are we going to respond to it? And, and Abby, you touched on people of changing, you know, or impacting how they live. And, and Natalie, you did too, you know, in terms of like, you know, the coastal lines, the coastal squeeze and that kind of thing. We're really having to kind of change how we approach the environment and how we approach our, our living conditions. So, you know, Abby, you've articulated a, a bold and ambitious adaptation plan for the Thames, which is presumably going to result in a lot of change to the current set of assets and associated landscapes. So how do you go about getting people to support that kind of change? I mean, beyond just, you know, the government mandate, real change has to start, like everybody has to kind of embrace that. So how do you, how do you get there? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, I think, we're, we're actually really in the thick of starting some of these conversations now. I mean, by starting, I mean, we've been having them for years, but we like literally this week, we've kicked off a series of collaborative workshops with some of our partners to, to think about this and, and to create more co-ownership of the plan and the outcomes that it needs to deliver, but really the actions and activities that need to happen to deliver it. And I think that one of the contexts we have to think about in terms of this the change that's going to be needed because of climate change, but we also have change happening because of growth. Um, and I think, you know, in London or just outside of London, the outer Thames estuary has been recognized as a prime government growth opportunity area. And a 2019 Thames estuary growth commission report stated that we need 1 million new homes by 2050 to meet the housing need. So a lot of that growth is happening on the waterfront. And not only is there kind of residential growth and development happening, but there's also infrastructure plans. So you've got the lower Thames crossing being planned and, and a lot of other activity happening. And so, you know, there's, the change that's going to come from climate change and flood risk is the change that we're putting in because of growth and development. And I think you're right. It's just how do we think about making sure that we're bold about how we integrate those things so they're not competing against one another, but that actually, you know, Natalie was talking before about making space for water and development and whether we're, you know, making space for water and green infrastructure and that kind of nature-based solution part which is part of the solution, but also making space for new infrastructure, new hard infrastructure that we might need. And I think we need to work together to be able to kind of make those things work on, on you know, on, on the ground and, and take into account both things, because you can't really have one without the other. You, you need the growth, you need houses and, and infrastructure, you need that to support people, but you need to protect the area from flood risk as well. So, I mean, I think you know, we've talked a lot about like partnership working, collaboration. And I think that's where a lot of our energy goes into. Um, and at the moment, we are having those conversations with partners about coing the plan. And we're thinking about different ways to engage landowners and like local people on this, which is not something that we've historically done that well. I mean, it is quite difficult. And so working with other organizations and groups to try to do that differently and try to actually bring people along on almost a more personal and community-based level. 
Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, that's kind of what we need to be doing now. But in the not too distant future, we are going to have to make some really big decisions and big investments about the future of the estuary, whether that's, you know, major new infrastructure um, that will have an impact on the kind of shape of the estuary or some of the smaller kind of investments we need all the way along the estuary. And, you know, we are, we, uh, Natalie was talking before about how do we invest? And we are trying to look at what are what are some of those innovative and green finance um, investment opportunities that we should be thinking about, and rather just only thinking about this from the kind of public sector investment model, but how do we actually bring in that private investment as part of it? Because there's lots of private beneficiaries to the investments we make here. And I think that's that's a direction everyone's probably going to have to go in. And so we're thinking about how do we take advantage of that to make sure that we get the environmental and climate outcomes we need alongside kind of those social and community outcomes. And then Natalie, my last question for you is, regards Jacobs and how it's responding to this issue. You know, how is the company helping its clients present the need for change to a a wide range of stakeholders? First and foremost, investing in developing our capability and capacity in stakeholder comms and engagement. I mean, I've seen that team grow exponentially over the past 15 years, I'd say. And now it's, it used to be only on the major schemes would you have like a stakeholder professional on your project team, whereas now it's pretty much integral to everything that we're doing because it is directly impacting on people in communities and in their daily lives. So certainly professionalizing that expertise and having those people embedded in your project teams, working alongside the designers and the relationship leaders to to make sure that we are bringing people along that journey and actually engaging. I mean, we in our in this particular industry, you know, we, we we've taken a while to get round to understanding that you have to take people on the journey. They don't want you to come to them with the foregone conclusion because at least they feel like they've been part of the decision making. You can't make everyone happy, of course, but at least everybody feels like they had their voice heard. They said what they thought a decision got made. And that really changes the environment within which you're trying to get things done. And I also think that Jacobs invests heavily in the culture of the people that enables our designers, our engineers, our technologists to really think about who they're serving. You know, we have a a culture in Jacobs where we encourage people to be curious, ask Mm -hmm. why, Why am I even doing this? And if you understand that, then when you are coming up with your solution, you're going to be thinking about the who is going to be living with this, who has to operate and maintain this asset that I've I've been asked to design. And that really changes the way that you think about what you're going to produce. And also I'm seeing increasingly inclusive engagement practices. So coming back to professionalizing stakeholder comms and engagement Certainly during the change in ways of working, going virtual, which is new to a lot of us, it's not new to a lot of others, we're we're seeing an opportunity to engage with the younger generation who have to live with the legacy that we're creating and finding ways, but there's no one size fits all. It's I think that there is more of an emphasis around making sure that you are reaching out to, to everyone, understand your community, who's your audience, 
because yes, you you want to engage with uh, the the people who inherit the legacy, the, the families and working people who interface with what you're doing day in and day out, but also you know the older generation, not to to exclude them because people who've lived through the all the changes that have been going on for the last several decades they have a lot to offer and they have a lot of experience and and my mother-in-law for example yeah she's super savvy independent clever woman she has an ipad she knows how to email her friends but i'm pretty sure she'd rather respond to a questionnaire that came through the post then try to fill out, you know, a form online. So it's those inclusive engagement practices that we're increasingly applying on our projects and also engaging with small to medium enterprises, because that then gives you the local flair to what you're doing. If you're working with companies who really understand the place, you know, we're making places mm-hmm. better. And I mean, I, I went out for a cup of tea with someone who works for an SME that is a business partner on a couple of projects. And she described herself riding around on her bicycle through the, all these neighborhoods around London, Thameside, and really getting to know the street names, how they interconnected, observing the way people use the space so that when she was engaging with people, she had that credibility and you need credibility mm-hmm. to get trust. And if people trust you, then you can get things done. And at the end of the day, we're people doing good things for people. And particularly in the case of working with the Environment Agency, we're, you know, we're working to enhance the natural environment that, that supports all life, making that personal. Mm, well said. Well, Abby and Natalie, this has been a fascinating discussion about uh, the challenge of sea level rise and you know, what is being done and, and what we can learn from uh, global leader like the city of London. So I want to thank you both so much for joining me today. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having us. Thank you.